Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. quick before we get the show started, I want to share with you something that we're really excited about. Mike and I launched Principles of Program Design just about two years ago. And since then, we've been working really hard on building more and more content. And we're finally ready to release some of that great new stuff. We're having a updated version of our original online foundations course where we've added three new bonus chapters. We've also updated our live course. And we're going to be doing that in April at Scale of Strength in Massachusetts. We also have three brand new online courses, including our exercise coach course, where we teach you our belt system of how we progress and regress and coach exercises, as well as group mastery, where Mike shares his systems for how he implements his successful group fitness training programs up at Skill of Strength, as well as something called Primed, where we teach you about programming warmups And then in addition to that, we're also launching a virtual mentorship where we're going to work hands-on with a select handful of coaches and trainers working with you every week on how to develop the best systems and programs to build a successful career. And then in addition to that, we're putting together a free ebook as well as a supporting webinar where we're going to give you our top 10 tips to a successful career in the fitness industry. We're going to share with you our secrets and our systems that we use that have helped us open up our facilities, as well as speak around the world and work with some of the best athletes uh, out there. And so to get more information on all of this, go to principleswebinar.com and you can find out about all the new and exciting stuff. Now, let's get ready to get started with the show. And away we go. Here we are with episode number 66 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. And Mike, we've had some really, really good guests along the way. And then we've had a few that fall under the legend category. And I think this is one of them. Yeah, no, this is this is uh this is one of the podcasts that I can't wait to listen to several times because I know uh I'm going to be learning a lot. So uh, before I spoil it, um, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce our guest for today, Eric? All right. So I want to get right into it. So let's tell you who we have. We have Dr. John Berardi, and he's a Canadian-American entrepreneur. You probably best know him as a co-founder of Precision Nutrition, which is the world's largest nutrition coaching education software company. Uh, he's also the founder of the Changemaker Academy, devoted to helping would-be changemakers turn their passion for health and fitness into a powerful purpose and wildly successful careers. He also hosts the Dr. John Berardi Show podcast that goes kind of beyond the health and fitness industry, speak about important life lessons and seeming you know, competing uh, points of view, which we may get into some of those today. And over the years, he's advised everybody from Apple, Equinox, Nike, Titleist, 
the San Antonio Spurs, Carolina, Carolina Panthers, U.S. Open champions, UFC champions. He's been named one of the 20 smartest coaches in the world and one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness. And it's an honor to have him on. Dr. John Berardi, welcome. Hey, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. No pressure either. Throwing around words like legend and uh, <laughs> you're going to listen to the show many times. Now I have to now I have to deliver, guys. This is a lot of pressure. No, thanks for the I, kind I think you're going to be all right. I think you're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not my first rodeo. But uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation, guys, re really a lot. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So in your career, you've experienced just about every aspect of health and fitness from being an athlete, a coach, a writer, a professor, a researcher, podcaster, entrepreneur. You've worn so many different hats. What has been a favorite or one of the favorites that you've had and, and what has been the most impactful for you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, probably this is going to be a different sort of an answer, but, you know, probably my favorite hat has nothing to do with any of these. So uh, after I sold Precision Nutrition, um, which was in 2017, um, we took our kids out of school and, and we started homeschooling them. And that by far has been my favorite, most fun job of my entire life. Um, so a lot of things that I had the opportunity to do earlier in my career were amazing. I liked them a lot. They were part of a, you know, sort of a career for me, but a vocation and a calling for me. So all of that was really, really positive. But honestly, I think I really had the most fun uh, these last few years homeschooling with the kids. Uh, it was a really just a really interesting mix of you know, having to come up with curriculum, which I, I love to do. I'm an educator at heart. Um, it's with my family, which created a whole bunch of cool, in the beginning, it's challenging, but a bunch of cool family dynamics and things like that. And just being able to do education at that level for all the kids has probably been my most fun job that I've had uh, to date um, because it brought out so many different things. And I, I, you know, I think the other reason that it like I, I think of it as more fun is that a lot of my prior grown up professional career work, um, I don't know, you get, I get really strivy and ambitious for it, you know, whereas like your ambition with homeschooling your kids is, is takes on a different kind of character, right? So I think uh, just in retrospect now, you know, it's like, oh, I think it could be more fun because I wasn't always trying to accomplish big goals with it. Whereas that's what I was trying to do early in my career, which brought a lot of meaning and satisfaction and purpose and all those kind of things. But I think um, certainly for ambitious people, having big goals can strip some of the fun out of it, uh, which is an important lesson for me that I learned only, you know, in retrospect in retirement. Uh, with that said, though, you know, you also asked about sort of impactful for me. Certainly my work as an entrepreneur, so running and growing Precision Nutrition was the most impactful in shaping who I am. It was the most formative. Um, I think work, if done well, can be a really fantastic catalyst for growth as a person. And um, I don't know, sometimes I look around the world and I don't see people treating work that way. Um, now we should probably qualify, look around the world. What does that mean? Right. The lion's share of people in the world don't get to choose their work. They don't get to choose some type of work that fits within their, you know, unique abilities or passions or any of that. So 
if you live in a country and you're in a socioeconomic bracket where you get to choose your work, right? You're part of a very, very small percent of the population and you're lucky and you should feel some gratitude towards that, right? So because of that, I think it's incumbent upon you to look at work in a way that it can produce these kinds of things, right? I can choose something that's in my unique abilities. I can choose something that's within my passion set. I can choose something that's in my value set and I can use it as, as a growth opportunity rather than just, ah, I'm out here working for the man, uh, dreaming about some day where it's different. You know, um, we at Changemaker Academy often write about different sort of orientations you can have towards work. One is job where it's, you know, I go do this thing. I get paid money in exchange for my hours. And with that money and the extra time that I have, I go do the things that I like to do. Um, the next is career where it's like, okay, this is a profession that I could probably be pretty good at. And um, I have some goals. They be, might be financial goals. They might be, um, I want to be recognized or valued or get some meaning from it. Um, and that's the career dimension, right? So you're using it to accomplish goals. And then there's sort of the calling dimension where it's like, man, I would probably do this if it was free, you know? And it just brings me so much joy and meaning and purpose in my life. And I also get to do it for work. So that's the calling dimension. Now, there's no right orientation here. And every one of them is a certainly valid way of doing it. But I think in all of them, there are opportunities that can be lost uh, if people's minds aren't oriented correctly to growth. You know, like, and, and again, I, I saw it um, in my 15 years at Precision Nutrition. Um, at every turn, if you're curious about how work, the challenges that you face at work, the people that are challenging, the people that are great, the positive things that happen, the choices that you get to make every day, um, if you see them as an opportunity to grow yourself into the kind of person you'd like to become, then work can be a really great catalyst for growth. So, you know, most impactful was my time as an entrepreneur. You know, every day we were fortunate, our company was growing all the time. So every day I'd wake up and I'd be ill prepared for what was next because I'd never been there before, right? So every day I was ill-equipped to handle what was coming. So I had to level up every day. And that was a tremendous catalyst for personal growth. That's awesome. And, and so before we keep go to the next question, I can totally relate. And I'm sure you can as well. Mike, Mike has two boys. His are, his are younger, minor, both the one graduated college, one's in college, but you know, they do kind of keep your type A personality in check, right? Like yeah, I was just telling this, I was just telling this story the other day, how my older son, I was coaching, you know, one of the freedoms I got to have with my career is the ability that I could coach them in all their sports and be there for, for yeah. all these special things. And I remember coaching him and he was in peewee football, like his first year. And he, he's at practice and he, and he comes up after making a tackle and he goes, dad, I knocked my tooth out. And I'm like, this is amazing. I have Jack Lambert <laughs> living in my house. Like this kid is going to be middle linebacker for, you know, in the NFL. And then he hands me the tooth. He goes, hold on to it. We need this for the tooth fairy. And it was like, it immediately <laughs> awesome. brought me back to like, dude, keep yourself in check. He's, yeah. he's nine years old, like relax. So um, let's, let's talk about precision nutrition. And one of the things that always stood out to me and how it's kind of 
stood out differently from a lot of the nutrition plans that that were out there and available in our industry is that you're one of the first people that really focused on a habit forming, um, where mm-hmm. most are kind of going right to the calorie counting, the macronutrient ratios and good and bad mm-hmm. foods kind of what led you down that path to realize that that's probably the bigger issue here. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I like the macronutrient stuff and and nutritional biochemistry as much, if not more than the next guy. Uh, I did a PhD in it after all, so probably more than the next guy. I like those things. Um, but uh, what I learned in just working with clients, which is, you know, I've, I've always worn both those two hats. You know, I, I was in academia. I really liked science. I really liked research in this area. Um, but I was always coaching throughout the whole process. That's how I got my start. I started out as a personal trainer when I was 18 years old, paid my way all the way through all the school, which is a lot of school, uh, training clients doing, you know, and, and as the field evolved, it wasn't just personal training, then it was lifestyle coaching. So you talked about nutrition and sleep and stress management and all that stuff. And I mean, you can't be quote unquote on the ground working with real human beings and, um, feel like giving macronutrient prescriptions or nutritional supplement plans detailed down to the minute when you take them after X previous activity um, and uh, be slapped in the face with the reality of um, you're working with human beings who are in the context of a messy human life. And uh, that stuff just doesn't work most of the time. You know, uh, now your plan is probably brilliant. However, how it meets the reality of a human life may not mesh. So, um, I mean, the story that sort of crystallized all this for me was, you know, I remember getting invited and this was one of the first uh, high level sports teams I was invited to work with. It was the U.S. uh, bobsled team. And um so I got invited in a really good time because uh, the year prior to working with them, they were, or, or the year that I, I started working with them was the year before they broke a 60-year drought in medals uh, at the Olympics. So, so the U.S. bobsled team had not won an Olympic medal since 1960 or something. Um, and uh, and so the the year after I worked with them, and, and this isn't me saying it's because of me. No, uh, they were just a great squad that I got to go work with. And so the year after I uh, the year after I started with them, they won the Olympic gold medal in in bobsled. Um, but I went in. I knew they were super high performers. I knew that great things were positioned because they were having great World Cup results. And so I just erroneously presumed that because these were big, gigantic, jacked, fast, high performance athletes who were achieving at, you know, gold at world level, they would be, you know, I don't know, at least intermediate to advanced in their nutritional knowledge, in their understanding of sleep. And so I make this, uh, this talk like a PowerPoint presentation for them. And it was pretty advanced. And it was like all about nutritional biochemistry and how to optimize post-workout nutrition and what to do in the morning and how to manipulate hormone levels with food. And I was like super pumped to share all this really high level stuff with them. And so I'm sitting in the lecture hall and they start trickling in and half of them show up late with bags of McDonald's. And I'm like, oh man, 
I prepared the wrong talk. So as advanced as they were in you know physical performance, they were really rudimentary in terms of their nutritional knowledge. And it now that wasn't the moment that I changed, right? Because there were years of experiences of you know beating my head against the wall, going, how I mean, I'm coming up with these amazing plans. How come these people are just can't do them? Why won't they follow them? What's wrong with them? Um, and then I realized, man, I'm sitting in a room with some of the most elite athletes in the world. They're better than me at any of this sports stuff. So maybe there isn't something wrong with them. Maybe there's something wrong with me and my approach to coaching them. And that was the first little mm, stepping outside of my experience, right? And I'm young at the time and young people can do this sometimes. They don't have as much empathy. They don't have as much understanding of the other person in any human interaction that they have. And everything's about them, right? I just got back from a coaching mentorship where I was uh, helping out a small group of folks um, with leadership and coaching stuff. And uh, the younger members of the group just kept having this problem. Everything was centered around their experience. My boss does this. My coworker does this. My athletes do this. So it's always pointing the finger at someone else and how they're doing the wrong thing and ruining the experience of said coach, right? And uh, I remember those days because I was that person. But you need a couple wake-up calls to think, oh, wait, what's it like in the other person's shoes? And when you have that moment, you can start thinking about novel solutions, right? The old saying you know, in, in health and fitness was you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? And this is how most coaches approach their career. Hey, I've got the best advice. I do lots of continuing education. I spend a lot of time, probably more than I'm paid for, coming up with great plans. But if the person doesn't do it, it's not on me, right? And it sounds like it's such, it's such a great little witticism, you know? But it, it's an ineffective way of coaching, you know? Uh, what I learned as I started going down this journey of like, wait, if it, if I can't blame the other person and I have to blame myself for them not following the plan, what can I do to fix that, right? And so the saying became, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink, but you can make them very thirsty. So I went out to look at all the research that would help me make clients thirsty, make them want to do the plan make the plan easy to do in the context of their life. And that led me to, at the time, positive psychology. Um, you know, I've been doing this a really long time, so a lot of the words are different now. But uh, positive psychology at the time was like really the first attempt at like the psychology departments at universities to talk about non-pathological psychological research. So rather than just talk about when people are broken, you know, and what kind of counseling they might require, what do we do to help people thrive? What do we do to help them change in positive ways? Uh, not when they're addicted to drugs necessarily or making bad choices, but when they're living a normal human life, how do we help them level that up? So that was positive psychology, then came change psychology. And I started to just dig into literature there and say, wait a second, you know, uh, I was in uh, my PhD at the time. Uh, so I always think in terms of like the university that I was at. And I was like, wait a second, there's a department right up the hall from me that's studying the thing we can't figure out in our department. Why don't I just go read some of their literature and figure out what they're doing? And then, man, this is a great 
career and business opportunity. I can teach their stuff with our examples, health and fitness examples over here. I don't have to invent any new knowledge. And we can help a lot of people, make a lot of money, make a big difference in the field. And I don't have to be a pioneering researcher. I'll just go read what my friends up the hallway are saying and then bring it over to here. So that was like really the catalyst for me. It was just these repeated experiences of being like, people can't do this stuff. People can't do the printed meal plan. Now, someone out there might say, yeah, sure, sure. Some of them can. And you're right. Some of them can. But those are the people who didn't need our help in the first place. They would have figured it out. The people who can follow a plan that you write on a piece of paper every day with discipline and consistency, that person's going to figure out life, okay? They're not going to have any struggles. They don't need you. It's the rest of them. It's everyone else who struggles with that, who has a busy life, and that piece of paper doesn't map to it. So I had that sort of realization. I put myself in my client's shoes. I said, all right, we need to figure out other ways to help make change. Um, and, uh, that led me to change psychology and then sort of adopting those principles and weaving them throughout the nutrition, health, fitness industry. Wow. I, I, you know what I, I think about coaching and I remember I was running a, a camp last year and I had about 30 lacrosse players and I was like, I put together this beautiful structured program with, you know, we're talking about, you know, the ratios for speed work and it was money. And, uh, and then after we would do lacrosse. And so this, you know, the, the speed stuff went great. And then I realized some of these kids can't catch. So yeah. the entire program that I wrote that was going to be this impactful program that's just going to help all these kids, I had to throw out the window because they they didn't have the basic fundamentals of catching and throwing where I was going to bring to them these fancy things. Yeah. Like, you need the prerequisites, right? Before you do the fancy stuff. It's like- That's right. And then, I, then I said to myself, I was like, I, I came- I came into this uh, completely wrong. It's, you know, it, and now I think to myself, like, I need to, I need to go in and, and manage expectations a little bit because if they can't catch and throw, they can't do the fancy stuff. And I think about other sports like hockey, it's like, you have to be able to skate, right? Like that's kind yeah. of like hockey one-on-one, right? So yeah, it's just amazing. And, and I think coaches have done it so many times where they, they create the perfect template or the perfect program only right. to go, yeah, that didn't work at all and rip it up. And then have to kind of think on the fly. And I can't tell you how many times I've done that and how many people I know have done something like that. So yeah. man, I tell you what, if you've been in the industry any amount of time, that is something that is uh, uh, happens all the time. But we're gonna we're gonna kind of change uh, change the topic somewhat. Well, um, let me it, let me let me bring that one to a close though. I really liked your example and it reminded me of the question that I that comes up often for me, which is um how quickly are you able to do that to throw that thing away because that's really the difference between an experienced uh, let's call it elite coach and someone not quite there yet how quickly can you assess the situation and go damn okay i gotta get rid of this you know and i and i literally had this moment yesterday so i um i really liked you talking about erica about having the opportunity to coach your kids and stuff which i'm i'm wearing the soccer uh, uh zip up the, for the uh soccer team that I coach. And I also coach our kids in track and, and uh, flag football. And so I just started um, with this uh, flag football team. They're a really high level, internationally competitive flag team. And we're preparing for a tournament uh, down in Florida. It's the world championships of flag uh, in January. And I just found out that our quarterback, our starting quarterback, isn't going to be able to go to the tournament. So I brought someone out last night 
to vet them uh, for whether they'd be able to to lead the team down in Florida. And I have a beautiful playbook, which has had a lot of success. We've won seven league championships in a row with it. It's, you know, I, I, I love my plays, right? And then uh, this quarterback came out last night and can't execute any of them. Um, my last four quarterbacks are all pocket passers. And this is a mobile, creative, super fast, super athletic quarterback who doesn't have those fundamentals. And so what, what you're talking about, like, I want to dig in so hard and be like, I need to find a new quarterback. I need to make this quarterback adapt to my system. But after about an hour of pouting, I was just like, none of that's going to work. I got to throw out the plan and we got to come up with a new game plan, new playbook for a mobile quarterback. And um, I called up a couple of friends who, who are really good at coaching that style of QB. And I was like, I need your help. I'm not going to get this on my own. I have five years experience loving my way. You know what I mean? Um, we need a new way and I need to break this system and build it again for Florida as quick as I can. So that's, um, I think, you know, understanding that you might have to throw out the plan, that you might have to come up with a different plan, that there might be a whole nother route is like only the first step. The next step is how quickly can you do that? And then the step after that is how do you fill in the gap as quick as possible? right? Who are you going to call and say, hey, this isn't working. I need to fix it. And I don't know how, because I've only done it the other way. So that's to me is like the action steps. Hey, realize, you know, the change process is super important. Um, fitting this into actual human life is really important. And if you don't have those skills yet, who can you call? What can you do? How do you get there super quick? Let go of what you're tied to, get advice on how to do the next thing. That's how you be of, of the best service. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we've all been there. But um, as we sort of change gears a little bit, we're going to talk about, you know, a little bit more about nutrition. And um, so we're going to do a little bit of a blanket statement here. When we're talking about the general public and nutrition, do we make nutrition too complex when it should be simple? Or is it simple and we make it too complex? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've obviously thought about this question a lot over the years, this simplicity versus complexity. The first thing I think, though, is that um, I've come to learn there is no such thing as the general public. You know what I mean? There there really isn't. You know, we can we can come up with that. But as I've gotten further in my career, I started just asking the question of like, who are these individuals? You know what I mean? Like, and then you quickly learn that um, there's all different types of individuals, right? Who have different experiences and different backgrounds, and they've had different levels of coaching and different levels of exposure to ideas. They have different thought process processes. So I try not to collapse things anymore um, into advanced versus beginners or, you know, general public versus elite athletes or whatever, and just say, I, I don't. I don't really know that there's an answer to this, but what I do think when I look around is that people are often thinking of, let's say, exercise, nutrition at the wrong level, right? So it might not be too simple. It might not be too complex. It could be both. It could be neither. I don't know. But they're, like, if you think of like a level of zoomed inness, you know, or zoomed outness, I think the level often becomes too zoomed in. So when people start thinking about nutrition or exercise, they go right to the 
kind of nitty gritty detailed specifics of it. Um, people who love to do research and stuff like that, they really get into that dimension of thinking, right? Like, oh yeah, what's the best split or macronutrient split or workout split or whatever, or what's the best exercise? So they they get in a very zoomed in kind of perspective when I think probably more people would do better, not just in exercise, nutrition, fitness, but in life in general, looking at things from a bit more of a zoomed out perspective, you know? Um, I don't know. I just thought of it. Uh, a good friend of mine for many years, this guy named Alan Cosgrove, a lot of people in health and fitness know who he is. And I remember he was uh, telling me um, when he was early in his career, he got a chance to sit down with Bill Parisi for lunch. Now, Bill uh, started Parisi Speed Schools, and he's a legend in his own right for you know athletic training of, of youth in particular. Um, and Alan's like still kicks himself to this day. Cause he's like, I was sitting there with one of the smartest guys who built these franchise models and had successful gyms. And I was just starting my very first one, like 500 square feet. And I'm asking this guy about like squat racks, like what squat racks should I buy when I should have been asking these really high level business questions and stuff. And, um, I totally get where he's coming from. And at the same time, like it would have been nice to ask some of those questions at the same time, at that time, he just needed a squat rack. You know what I mean? Like that's what his needs at the time were. Right. Um, so you think about this when it comes to like planning your exercise, nutrition, et cetera. Right. Like what should you be asking? What are your needs? We always have to figure out the balance between those two. But I mean, if we're going to really talk about what people need, it, it, it needs to be thinking about the big rocks. You know, what are the big rocks here? What are the big inputs that have the most impact on whatever health, body composition, and performance? And, you know, I mean, I spent my life studying nutrition. Nutrition probably is number three or four. It's, it's probably not number one. And everyone who works in nutrition wants to tell you, you are what you eat though, your cells, like say all the things, right? But, but truly, like when we're talking about health and longevity and living a vibrant life that you want to live and being able to do athletic things or even active things, nutrition falls low on the list. I mean, you, you've got to exercise. That's probably the number one most important thing. Now, do you have to zoom in, sets, reps, all that stuff? Probably not. You know, maybe you can get there at some point if your brain needs entertainment, you know, but in the beginning, it could be pretty straightforward. And I'm not going to talk all about that because it's not my chosen level of expertise. And you probably both are better at that than me. But I think if we had to look at big rocks, it's exercise, it's stress management, it's sleep. These things are going to pay way bigger dividends than like whether you ate protein or carbs at lunch. Um, and so those are the big ones. That's where you put your energy. I think nutrition, again, this is that sort of appropriate level of zoomed outness, um, can be as simple as pretty well what Michael Pollan said, you know, eat whole foods, not too much. He said mostly plants. I'd say a mix of plants and animals, you know, but that if if you got your exercise right and your sleep right and your stress management right, then if you just ate whole foods or most of your diet coming from whole, whole foods, not too much, and uh, a good mix of plants and animals, you're done. You know what I mean? And, and some ice cream once in a while. That's good. You know, that'll, that'll cover most of your bases. Um, but if you don't exercise, you're screwed, right? Get your nutrition right and don't exercise. 
life is hard for you. Life is going to go bad for you. Longevity, health span, athleticism, the ability to be active and do things, it's going to go horrible for you. You got to do that. If you don't sleep, life's going to go really bad for you. And that's how you think about it. You know, if you um, don't get your macros right, but you don't eat too much, life's probably still fine, you know? But uh, the other things, you miss those, doomed. So I, that's where I think nutrition has to fit into the hierarchy. And when people get all finicky about it, I think they're just zoomed way too zoomed in when they should be zoomed out looking at literally what's going to make a difference in your life. And the way to know is just ask, if I don't sleep enough, does life go sideways? Yes or no. If I don't eat the right mix of proteins to carbs, does life go sideways? Yes or no. And that answers the question pretty quick as what I should put my energy into right now. Well, Perry, you know that I'm loving that the that he's using the jar of life analogy because we actually have that in our in our course, uh, John, and that we talk about with programming, yeah. like it, it, the, you know, work on your big rocks before you worry about your sand. Yes. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think that drives confusion and ultimately gets people frustrated and they throw their hands up because they see a story on the 10 o'clock news or some clickbait mm -hmm. thing online. And it says that pick whatever it is, coffee, tomatoes, whatever it is, this is good for you. And then the next week they hear, oh, well, no, it's bad for you. And so they're like, they don't know what to do. And so they just say, screw it. So talk about your experience in nutrition research and where some of the, some of the big flaws are and in, in how it's currently and commonly done. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I guess, you know, We'll talk about how the media portrays research and then we can talk about research. You know, I think no one should put any stock in what they hear about nutrition research in the media. Um, so you should just view it as all of it as tabloid reports. Like if you see that um, Brad and Jen are talking again and maybe going to get back together on the cover of the thing at the grocery store. Do you believe that? Or are you just like, oh, that's just something. You know what I mean? Someone's making up a story about something that eh, they need to sell papers, I guess. That's what you do, right? I mean, I, I presume. God help us if people actually think these are real reports. I, that's how you have to treat all media reported nutrition stuff. It's like the latest gossip on Brad and Jen, right? Like, we don't actually believe that's going to be true or that... Uh, Michael Douglas's ex tried to murder him in 1970. What you see these stories and you're like, ah, what is this? You know, um, that's how you have to treat nutrition reports. Like, if you don't want to be confused, if you don't want to be misinformed, you go, oh, there's a there's a cute little report on a nutrition thing. You know what I mean? You don't even have to be curious about those, right? Don't be like, I got to look into this. The news reported the thing on coffee. Go, oh, isn't that cute? They're just trying to get some attention by misreporting, probably by accident, nutrition stuff. You know, that's how most, well, let's say, um, experts or scientists view these things, right? Um, I, so I guess some of them get mad if they feel like it's inaccurate or whatever, but um I don't know, with this barrage of media reports on everything and anything, uh, you'd be mad all the time. So I just choose not to be mad. I just go, isn't that cute? They're talking about this stuff they don't know anything about. It's probably wrong, all of it. So leave it all alone, right? Now, when we actually get to the research itself, 
this is part of the reason why it's hard to actually report it. So it's not just journalists being goofy. It's often difficult to report it is that most of the research studies out there are just, they're observational or cohort studies. So you take a big group of people, you see what they did, and then you measure some stuff about their health or their performance and try and guess as to whether something they ate, whether it was like three servings of vegetables or six or whatever, presuming they reported it accurately, which they probably didn't, which also was an accident, not on purpose. Um, see if it had some relationship. And those studies are just bad. I mean, they can give us some very weak clues. It's not like this is scientists acting in bad faith, but it's the only way we can really look at some of these things. I mean, it's too difficult to do controlled trials in a human. Like, uh, okay, I'm going to take you, Eric, and I'm going to feed you um, 50% of your diet red meat for the next 50 years. And I'm going to take you, Mike, and we're going to do 50% of your diet as chicken for the next 50 years and see who dies first. Well, we're not, no one's doing that study, right? It's too long. Uh, Eric might want chicken once in a while. Mike might want red meat. So this isn't going to work. So we can't do those studies. So, and like nutrition studies for health, um, usually the effects come later, right? It's, just, it's, it's the accumulated effects of eating a certain way, not the acute or immediate effects. So you can't always see an a, acute change. You know, you can't do these long range studies in, in a human life. They're too expensive and humans probably would not be consistent with it. So nutrition research is really good for narrow answers to very specific questions. And probably for those who don't have a scientific background, this is really important. Research is just questions, right? I wonder what would happen if I did this and instead of that, right? That's just what science is, you know? And again, from homeschool, we do science projects uh, in, our, in our homeschool. And uh, this is what I teach the kids. Science isn't some thing, right? We shouldn't fetishize it. It's just your curiosity about the world and asking questions about the world, and then trying to come up with ways to answer those questions, right? And so science in nutrition is really good at acute things. So, hey, I just exercised. If I eat this, will it help me exercise better tomorrow? Well, let's give that a try. That's pretty easy to do. I'll, I'll give you meal A after your workout, and then I'll give you me, another group meal B after their workout and have them come back and work out a few hours later or the next day. And we can have a pretty good sense, especially if like we can have them hang out around the lab for most of that day, of what they did differently between the groups and how that might impact their performance. Not a perfect sense, but a pretty good sense, right? Um our daughter just did a study that was a, a really good one. Um, she's She was in seventh grade when she completed it, the equivalent of seventh grade. And uh, our kids all run track. So she wanted to look at in young athletes, um, do you run faster in 40 meters with regular running shoes versus spikes? So sprint shoes versus spikes plus blocks, right? And uh, we hadn't seen anyone publish a study on this before uh, in this age group. And, you know, kids all want to get spikes and run in them because they see the pros doing it. And we're like, is it is it actually faster in kids, though? Um, so she took 15 kids, ages 8 through 12, 
and had them do these three conditions, right? With rest in between. So you're going to run with running shoes, then spikes, then spikes plus blocks. And then a, an, another athlete might do spikes plus blocks first. So you randomize it. So there's not an order effect. And you basically ask this question, you can answer it in one session. And um, lo and behold, spikes were faster in every single athlete, no matter when they did the randomization, right? So we're like, this is statistically significant. Every athlete was faster under this set of conditions. Incidentally, blocks weren't faster in every athlete. They were faster in the older athletes with experience in blocks. And in the younger athletes with no experience, they weren't any faster. So this is science, right? You, you have a question, you can answer it effectively in a short session without a whole bunch of independent variables that you can't control. And that's what nutrition science is really good at. Um, it's not good at big sweeping health questions. It's way too hard to answer them. So that's why when you're like, oh, the latest study shows that blank will reduce your life or increase your life, um, the, those aren't good studies to begin with. And then the reporting of it isn't particularly good either. So um, part of the answer is, you know, don't pay much attention to this stuff yourself, unless you're a trained scientist. Um, get your advice, if you're interested in science, from trained scientists. Now, there's probably still conflicting ideas out, out there about between trained scientists, but it's far less confusing than if you're getting your advice from the media. You know, the other, the other thing, and I think it's really important to remind people of this, is that the field of nutrition is, is pretty young. Um, if you look at the field of chemistry, for example, it's been around for about 3,200 years. Nutrition is just creeping up on 200. So it's a really young field. And I, I come up with a, these numbers because you just look at when the first published nutrition studies were. It's 1940s, something like that. Or sorry, 1840s. Um, Whereas some of the first uh, chemistry reports were like BCE, you know? So uh, some of these more advanced fields have just been doing it for longer. They figured out how to measure things better. They figured out how to answer questions better. And nutrition's just a little baby field. So that's why it's confusing. So to expect any more of it would be like expecting your three-year-old to be fluent in multiple languages and to have like a movement lexicon of that of a adult, you know, you just, it would be a false expectation. And then to run around and be like, I'm so frustrated. My three-year-old can't do all the things that adults can do. Well, that's your fault, not theirs. You know what I mean? So don't expect the little baby field nutrition to be able to answer the questions that a big grown-up field like chemistry can. Uh, if you expect that, that's your fault, not its fault. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So speaking of big sweeping questions, something that you've been doing some work on recently, I know is, is longevity and health span. And I think you yeah. might, might answer the question of 
why there's a lot of incon uh, inconclusive evidence of how much nutrition plays a role. And even if you yeah. watch, you know, one of the, the, the more popular documentaries right now on Netflix is uh, about blue zones yeah, and totally. looking at how, how, you know, the diets in Okinawa are not the same as the diets in Sardinia, yet they're both thriving yeah. uh, octogenarians there. So talk a little bit about the role nutrition plays in, in the whole role yeah. of longevity and health span. Yeah, well, you know, this is another example of looking at things at the wrong level of Zoom or on the wrong dimension, uh, or uh, maybe not the wrong. I'll, I'll just say what I'm more interested in. So I, I've been doing this project, and it's not a commercial project. And again, my ambition sometimes whispers in my ear like, yo, you should be publishing this and teaching about this and stuff. And then I go, hey, relax, man, you're a stay-at-home dad now. That's what you do. Uh, this thing's just for fun. But I've been really, really interested in the question of health span. Uh, I'm 50 now, and so it's time of life for me, but also research is emergent. And even the use of artificial intelligence has really changed the game and our ability to sort of tease apart some different variables that we might not have been able to before. But where people immediately rush to is what are the interventions for lifespan and health span? And I'm like, oh, that's putting the cart before the horse we need to know what to measure first. So that's what I'm most interested in. So if we look at, you know, health span, the idea is just like, you know, how do you um, extend your period of healthy years so that you're not suffering early, quote unquote early, from cardiovascular disease, metabolic dysfunction, cancer, and neurodegenerative disease. Those are the big ones, right? And so for me, it's just like, what do you measure at what ages? So that's been the, the thrust of the project that I'm working on. Like, when do you start getting whole body MRIs or CT angiograms? What do you look for in your blood work? When do you start getting prostate screens for if you're a man? Um, and how do you look at your genetics as it relates to all these things? So I'm, I'm putting together this sort of, I don't know, set of ideas around this for myself and for, you know, my good friends who are interested in this or like, hey, yeah, send me the stuff that you're coming up with, right? Um, so, you know, so what blood work do you do beyond the normal stuff that your doctor might order? You know, how do you do early cancer screening, all this kind of stuff. And e even this one's been really interesting to me as well. Like, I don't know if either of you have a 23andMe profile. I, I do, our, our whole family does. So that's where you get your genes tested. And I don't know what it costs nowadays. Once upon a time, it was like 99 bucks, right? So you spit in a tube, you send, send it off. They do a genetic profile on you. And what's most interesting about that is the 23andMe reports are okay, but all the raw data exists, right? So for, for all the single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is your genetic code, um, that they test, they don't do your whole genome, but they do a pretty good sample. Um, it all exists online. And so with ChatGPT, what, what I've done now, and I, I have taught some of my friends how to do this is, you can basically ask GPT to search all the published medical literature on genetic polymorphisms that are related to cardiovascular disease, metabolic dysfunction, cancer, neurodegenerative disease. You can also ask it to stratify by associated or causal, right? So there's, there's some genetic polymorphisms that cause these diseases. If you have it, you're going to get it at some point in your life. And there are some that are just associated. So I can go in and say, hey, chat GBT, give me a list of up-to-date, like search the medical databases as well as you know what you've been trained on, up-to-date 
polymorphisms related to each of these four sets of conditions or outcomes, um, stratify them by causal or associative, and it'll give me this list. Then I can go into 23andMe, I can look for each of those genes and then take my data and plug it back into GPT and say, hey, could you please scan my data and tell me what my risks are for each of these causal and associative factors for each of those conditions, right? I, I did a really robust analysis of my own data in about one hour. And now I know what all my known genetic risks are for each of the causal and associated polymorphisms for cardiovascular disease, metabolic dysfunction, et cetera. So this is the kind of stuff I'm interested in now. It's like nowadays you can actually find out what your genetic risks are for these things. And then that can actually inform your measurement plan. And again, I'm way more interested in what to measure than the interventions because the interventions we already know, you have to exercise, you have to do sleep, you have to do stress management and then nutri not, not eat too much, eat a good balance of natural whole foods. And then there's probably some tweaks you could do if you have metabolic dysfunction, that might be when you start looking at you know, relationships of carbs and protein, you know, that's when those things might start to matter. If let's say you are on the border of type two diabetes, or you have type two diabetes, et cetera. Um, so, but the interventions we already know, I think the measurements are really critical because they're like the waking up factor or simply the, where do you put your energy factor? right? So as I get older, I know I'm doing most of the interventions well. I train as a master's track and field athlete and I compete. My training is robust. I, I train like a like an Olympian. Um, so my training's good. I eat, for, I eat well. I sleep seven and a half to eight and a half hours uh, per night. And I do a lot of stress management type stuff, mindfulness, meditation, um, do counseling and therapy, et cetera, right? So I feel like for me, I've got most of the big rocks taken care of. Um, but as I get older, if I find, I don't know, some test that I do with respect to metabolic dysfunction, starting to nudge towards type 2 diabetes or high blood glucose chronically or whatever the case may be, now I can actually go and tweak one of my sets of inputs, right? I could say, oh, okay, is it that I'm having ice cream too many days a week? Am I not doing enough zone two cardio? Whatever, right? These are where the questions come up. And you're tweaking that already solid foundation based on the tests that you're doing, right? Or let, let's say some early detection of cancer comes in. Okay, cool. Now I have to change some things for sure, right? Um, so this is where I'm interested in the longevity health span thing. It's mostly health span. It's mostly looking at how do you measure and stay on top of these things so that when your already good lifestyle, um, needs to be tweaked, you know, where it needs to be tweaked. And you're not just randomly choosing things because someone talked about it on a podcast or someone wrote about it on your favorite fitness magazine. It's because it's for you in the situation that you're in as you're getting older, you know? So that's, that's kind of where my attention's going to there. And again, I, I just think that the blue zone stuff's interesting. 
I watched it. Some of the books that are be, being written about this stuff are interesting. I read them. Um, but they're looking at it from a different dimension that I think is less important. It's just a scattershot of strategies when it's like, hey, um, you need to do the stuff we already know first. And then you need to measure stuff to see if you're like tracking towards problems before the problem happens. And then you can like surgically, what I, what I mean by surgically is like strategically intervene at that point rather than just trying to do everything to quote unquote be healthy. Well, I mean, uh, that, man, I have a feeling when people start listening to this, they're going to go right to 23andMe and Jet GPT and, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, you know, get, get all that information out there. But well, wow, like half the, half the people I know already have access to both. So I'm just like, you can figure this stuff out in an hour. It's it's really pretty straightforward. So for those who don't, like haven't done their 23andMe or whatever, yeah, that, that'd be a, a good opportunity to do it. And the only thing is always a point of caution is like, ask yourself, are you ready to find out these things? You know, uh, is it, uh, was, was the Chris Helmsworth show called Limitless? Is that the recent documentary? Did either of you see it? I haven't um, seen it, but oh. yes, that's the name of it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so a good example is in the last episode, uh, they did some genetic testing and he found out he has the APOE4 variant, um, which is basically the genetic polymorphism that's associated with Alzheimer's disease. People with APOE4 get Alzheimer's disease. It's causal. Um, so he basically found out in the filming of that show that he's going to get Alzheimer's disease at some point. Um, and that he has to do a bunch of stuff to try and delay, uh, which is fundamentally inevitable. Um, Peter Atia talks about- He talks about idea. in his book, Outlive as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he talks about the idea of, you know, the ideal thing with HealthSpan is that you die with these diseases rather than from them. Uh, in other words, you're able to mitigate the Alzheimer's symptoms through a bunch of strategic interventions. It could be, you know, pharmacology, it could be activities and exercises, et cetera. Um, so that you have low level Alzheimer's rather than die from Alzheimer's. Um, so, you know, before you go and start figuring these things out on your own, you might want to ask yourself, Hey, am I ready to know this? And I, and I certainly know some people whose answer is no, I don't want to know that it'll freak me out. And there's no point to that. Um, and that's a valid way of living. Uh, I'm way more curious than that. I, I don't think I could stop myself from knowing if I knew there was a way to know. So that's my orientation. But yeah, I mean, go do it if you if you're the kind of person who's like, yeah, I can handle to find out the truth. You know that the, that I have some real risks, uh, and then I want to use that to intervene. Wow, what a amazing information. Um, we're gonna we're gonna switch gears a little bit and and go back to you know some of the coaching programs that you've you've yeah. put out over, over the years. So, if you look at the data from which clients were successful mm -hmm. on your coaching programs versus those who struggled, is there a common trait or personality or habits that you saw in one versus the other? Yeah, um, you know it's it's interesting because there's a there's an assessment we really like called the caliper profile and so the caliper profile is predominantly used as like a work fit um personality slash work style assessment so i mean it's it's probably the most validated that i've seen they've tested over four million people 
And usually it's done like a company will say, hey, we're hiring a new, I don't know, client care role or customer service role or sales role. Um, and they'll use the caliper to assess candidates. And uh, caliper has a database of traits that are most often associated with success in those specific roles. Um, I first learned about Caliper, um, it's probably 2007. Uh, I had just moved to Toronto and I was reading in the newspaper that the Raptors were using this to assess draft picks. So, you know, potential new players on their team, they were giving the Caliper profile in addition to performance assessments to see if they would be a good fit for their team and culture because they already had Caliper profiles on the current players. So it's like, how, how will these players gel together, right? At this level, they're all good, but how would this person fit in with our culture? Um, so I was like, that's really interesting. Cool, I want to check this out. So we started giving it to our team members, but um, since then we've given tens of thousands of Calipers to clients to health and fitness professionals um, and learn some interesting things from that. The, uh, but, the, but I have sad news on this particular one. So we gave Caliper to a subset of our coaching clients. So uh, for those listening, you know, Precision Nutrition has coached over 200,000 clients uh, over the course of the coaching program that it runs. And uh, so we took a subset and we did genetic profiling on them. We looked at their caliper profiles, which is a set of 20-some personality traits. Uh, and then we had their data, right? We They coached with us for a year. So our, our coaching program is one year long, and we have daily data on them. So how often do they log in? When do they not log in? We have self-reported body weight, and uh, we used to do skinfold measures and circumferences. And then we have uh, answers to basic sort of consistency questions. Did you do your exercise today? Did you follow your nutrition habit today? Did you do your sleep habit today? Whatever. Um, so there's millions and millions and millions of data points. Um, we did find an interesting set of answers, but it was really unsatisfying for me, right? Like I was hoping there'd be like three or four traits that were associated with success and three or four that were associated with lack of consistency or inability to lose weight or whatever. And we never found that, um, which means that all different types of people can succeed. You know, so there, there, there isn't a magic formula for this personality wins the weight loss game or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, but the strongest and most powerful correlations or results from some of these findings actually had to do with consistency. So the answer to the question is what, what is the trait that is most associated with success in let's say a health, weight loss, body composition journey, it's keep showing up. Um, so with a data set, I think it was two, 2 million data points. Um, we actually found that like, so we, we stratified consistency, which means you stayed in the program for the full year and you followed it from 1% to 50% consistency, right? So you did anywhere from one to 50% of the things we asked you to do. Then the next stratification was 50 to 79%. And then there was 80 to 89% and then 90 to 90%. So there are basically four categories of what some people call compliance, we call consistency, right? So even in that lowest group, so people who followed 1% to 50% of what, what we recommended, 
um, but stayed the full course of the program, they lost 5% of their body weight, which is no joke. I mean, that's, that's a powerful, effective, health-changing result. Uh, and there was no difference between like the 20 percenters and the 50 percenters. They all got around the same result. Uh, then we look at the 50 to 79% category, and they lost about 7% of body weight. And then that 80 to 89%, they lost about 10% of body weight and the 90 or to 100% lost about 12% of body weight. So th these are really interesting findings because they showed two things. One is if you're really consistent, you're going to have the greatest result. Of course, we know that already. But even if you're doing what most people would deem as just totally crappy participation, you still can have a powerful result, right? So, I mean, and also you don't have to be perfect, right? Even the 79 percenters were losing like close to 10% body weight. And when they went for perfection, the group who did 100%, they only lost like a couple extra percentage of body weight, right? So doing like three quarters of what we asked is almost as good as doing all of what we ask. And doing only a quarter of what we ask can still produce a powerful result. So, I mean, for, uh, now we looked at lots and lots of personality variables and genetic variables and all this stuff. And what just kept coming up was the people who keep showing up end up doing well, even if they have more bad days than good days. And that was like the most powerful thing that I think we took out of all our... Now, as a scientist, I'm like, damn it, we measured a lot of shit. It was really expensive. And that's all we learned. But... I think it's a really important learning. As you're telling this story, I'm thinking of a story that I tell when we do our live course of, you know, there, there was uh, this former facility I used to work at. There was this guy who used to walk around the industrial complex. And yeah. It wasn't a particularly nice complex. So like, why yeah. would you pick this place and not a park or something like that? But yeah, he had this weird thing he would do. He would stop right in front of our glass door and he'd just do this really dramatic marching in place thing. And okay. at first it would like freak us out a little bit. Like, is this guy all right? Like, this is weird. But then I noticed that like, it would always happen when I was with a certain client. So he's doing it the same time all the time. And it didn't matter, right. hot, cold, rain, yeah. snow, whatever it was, he always did it. And then it I, it finally like clicked in my brain to like the the beauty and elegance of what he was doing. And, and I, I finally, I flipped it and I said, I'll take that guy's program Yep. over 99% of the periodized dialed in, you know, programs that are out there because he's doing it. Yeah. Right. And so that was the magic of it. So now let me take that same question that Mike just asked, and let me flip it towards your work with coaches, trainers, fitness professionals, anybody yeah. in the health field. Cause I'll tell you point blank when anybody comes up to me knowing what I do and they say, well, I'm interested in doing something in that field. I say the first thing you do is you're going to read John Berardi's Change Maker. That's nice. the first thing I tell him to do every single time. And I said, when you're done reading that, then I'll have a conversation with you. So, awesome. so, so with that, what do you see as maybe some possible things that are identifiers of the that the ones that become successful and great in our field versus the ones? And we just did some stats for a project we're doing, and we found that the average trainer's lifespan is like six to 24 months, which is a shame because you had somebody who's really passionate about doing yeah. this and they get burned out or whatever, they had false expectations and then they leave and they're gone in under two years. So yeah. is there anything that you see that 
as being what's going to make them last, what's going to make them stick and be successful. Yeah, totally. I mean, so we just, this is, uh, I was telling you before we started recording, uh, this question, uh, I didn't prompt you to ask, you asked it. And then I'm like, Hey, hot off the presses. Cause literally we just, I just collaborated with precision nutrition on a white paper on this. So one of the things I wanted to do when I retired was, um, I didn't want to do it myself. Um, you know, I, I, I'm focused on our family and our sports and our homeschool and all that stuff. But I wanted to get a team together that would look at this exact question. Like, hey, we know that the caliper assesses all these traits. What if we did a demographic survey asking people about in health and fitness about their income and their education and their feelings towards work and all this kind of stuff? And then we looked at the caliper to see if there's any relationship. So in other words, is there a relationship between how much money you make and certain personality traits uh, between your like sense of meaning and purpose in work and your personality traits and income and all these things? So we uh, collected data on close to 10,000 people. Uh, working in health and fitness, we asked them which dimensions they worked in. And I don't I, like whether they're an in-person personal trainer versus an online one and an, inf an influencer on social media versus a podcast host. So as long as they work in health and fitness, we looked at those things. And then we were looking for like, I don't know, are certain traits more likely to predict success in an in-person trainer versus an online one and all that kind of stuff, right? And uh, we're still doing analysis, but we do have a big overarching, interesting set of data that's more satisfying than the client one. And it's uh, there were five traits or behaviors that were most associated with financial success in health and fitness. So the five are assertiveness, which is a dimension that Caliper measures, uh, level-headedness, urgency, Empathy. So these are the top four traits, assertiveness, level-headedness, urgency, empathy. And there's like 20 some. And in this white paper, people can dig into it. Precision Nutrition is about to publish it probably in the next week or a couple of weeks. Um, and so it shows all the traits and it shows that these ones were the ones that were most associated with income. Uh, higher levels of income. And the last wasn't a trait, but it was a behavior. It was just how much you invest in ongoing continuing education. So which what's nice about all of them is that these are all developable traits or behaviors, right? So, uh, and in the white paper, we actually have a section like a skill builder section for each. So how do you build your assertiveness? How do you build your level headedness? How do you build your urgency? How do you build your empathy? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, 10,000 health and fitness professionals, uh, measured suggests that these are the things that are most associated with income. Interestingly, most of them were also associated with um, what we consider like love of work dimensions. So we asked questions that um, figure out, you know, and people rate on a scale, like how meaningful do you find your work? How satisfying does it bring you enjoyment? Does it use your unique abilities? Uh, could you see yourself staying in the field for the next 10 years? And would you recommend the field to others? So there were questions like that. And um, most of those were also associated with uh, income. And it, the nice thing was we measured all these people and the average responses to most of them were in like 75%. So uh, so people were saying 7.5 out of 10, 
yes to these things. So it was heartening, you know, at least to be like, oh, these people love their work. They find meaning in it and purpose and joy and they recommend it to others and stuff like that. So anyway, I think, um, again, I, for people really interested in the specifics, uh, this, this report, I think will be, uh, pretty interesting to you. Uh, you can see how we collected the data. You can see what the demographics were like, how many men, how many women, where they lived in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but it's the first time I think anyone's done anything like this in our field. And it's the first time anyone's shown, oh, there are personality traits, which are also developable traits that are associated with success in this field. And if you want to engineer your chances of higher success, you might think about these. Now, we don't know that they directly cause them, right? Same problem with you know cohort or observational research that we mentioned earlier so i can't say observational research has flaws and then say but ours is good you know but um th this is an observational study but at the same time we know they're at least correlated right so the people who have the best financial success in this field tend to also be assertive have level-headedness urgency empathy and spend money on education right so um some interesting things to think about for sure now, my curiosity is with this is looking back to what you said with the compliance with the with the end users with it tying to consistency. Yeah. Is it how much of that me being on year 25 and thinking selfishly about this data and thinking, okay, yeah. you know, how did I get this far? And it's there's a lot of times where a lot of other people, you know, rationally would have quit when you've gone through some of the things <laughs> that I've gone through. And it's like, there's a fine line, John, between stubborn and stupid. And I bounce yeah. back and forth with it daily, like to just keep showing up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I never know how to answer that because, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of great little cliches you can banter about. I read one on Instagram earlier today, a very influential person in the health, fitness and sport performance field was talking about how one of their mentors taught them that, uh, often people quit right before their, their big breakthrough. Right. And that sounds really great. And this guy had a big breakthrough. So when you hear that, you're like, yeah, I got to keep going. But, um, there's lots of people who never have their big breakthrough way more than this guy who did, you know what I mean? So, um, it's really easy to count the success stories and be like, yeah, for John, whatever. I, I have no idea. I have no idea when people should quit, when they should keep going, etc. Um, although I, you know, in change maker, I outline a bunch of ways to engineer the probability of success to be higher in your favor. And that's all we can ever do, right? We can go, Hey, what are the ways to just keep putting an extra half chip or chip in favor of me succeeding, you know, um, and trying to engineer that chance of, of success. That's all, that's all we can ever do. And, um, you know, ongoing education is one of them and mentorship is another one and making sure you use your unique, your unique abilities and making sure that people want to pay for your unique abilities. And, you know, so that comes there, there's the career section, there's the business section of the book. You know, I can't do it all in the podcast. I wrote a 300 page book, which kind of covers it, but, um, but that's, that's the best we can do. We can say, Hey, if I'm living to my purpose, and I'm using my unique abilities to serve it, and I'm living within my values, then I got the me part taken care of. Okay, now there's the them part, right? Does the world, them out there, want to pay for any of those things? And if the answer is definitively yes, 
now we're start now we're starting to engineer like hey i'm having fun or at least expressing myself in a positive way and using my unique ability according to my purpose they want to pay for this thing so now we're talking about engineering your probability of success rather than just hey here's what i want to do hope it works which is how a lot of people actually do it you know so um you know, again, when we talk about these traits like assertiveness and level-headedness and all that, those are a little bit of the nitty-gritty, right? That's how we describe the people who tended to do the best. But um, when we talk about how to engineer your chances of success, we have to go back to, you know, the basics of business. And all business is this. Find out what people want and are willing to pay for. Make something incredible to deliver that and then tell everyone about it. Uh, if that's not on your radar, then you won't be here in 12 months. Uh, if it is, there's a better chance. So this time has flown by, uh, and I want to respect your time, but do we have time where I can squeeze in one more? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So so one of the things that I've loved about this conversation and your work you know, overall is, is this the open accept, acceptance of divergent thinking and realizing that sometimes it's it's not black or white. And sometimes there's, there's can be two things right at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you didn't dig in and say, I'm the paleo guy. I'm the keto guy. I'm the, you know, intermittent fasting guy. So kind of talk about how we need more of that type of, you know, he, he's got a point and she's got a point and here's where we can take the, all that information we could all get better from. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's two things associated with that. One is it's your best chance of getting to the best ideas. You know, um, I, it's just important to me to have the best ideas and they're not in my head. They exist in community with other people. Right. And so that guy over there is really smart and that woman over there, and they all have their ideas, which is awesome. And I need to figure out what they are. I need to figure out how can I incorporate them into how I'm thinking because I want the best ideas in in my head and they don't exist there if I'm just thinking by myself or sitting alone. Um, you've probably read about one of my strategies. The biggest danger is, uh, to having the best ideas is for me, when I hear someone else's ideas that I immediately resonate with and go, man, that's good shit right there. That's the worst problem to be in right there. That's when you know you're in trouble, okay? Because the more immediately an idea appears to you like and, and appeals to you, um, the more likely it is just feeding your biases and you're not going to learn anything from it. So the quicker I'm like, oh, hell yeah, is the quicker I go right to Google and I type in that idea and type in scam, bullshit, uh, rebutted, disproven. Uh, I call it Google the opposite, right? So you put in the idea and then you find all the little nooks and crannies of the world that are trying to debunk it. And then you read those two. And I feel like I just, this is me personally, I have to read those resources like in proportion to my enthusiasm for the original idea. So the more enthused I was about it, the more resources I have to read trying to debunk it. Now I'm not trying to actually debunk it, right? 
Um, although a good scientist would, I mean, that's what science is, right? Science is proving the null hypothesis. For those of you who don't have any scientific training, right? What you're trying to do is you do an experiment. Let's say the one I mentioned earlier, do young athletes run faster in spikes than regular running shoes flats? Um, I think they would, but I have to disprove that with my experiment. I have to set up an experiment that's designed to show that there's no difference. That's how, what statistics are. That's what science is. And then if there does appear a difference, then we know there's a good chance that it was true, that spikes are faster than flats, right? Because we set out to try and disprove it. And then we're like, oh shit, we tried our darndest, but the spikes were still faster. Now we can have some confidence in that result. That's how we have to live our lives, right? Hey, I really like this idea. I think it seems really true. And I like the person who delivered it. Oh shit, I'm in trouble. Okay, gonna go Google this. All right, let's see if other people are... Now, if I can't find any information that seems to refute this or show me that there's some more nuance I haven't considered, then there's a good chance that that's a good idea that I ought to adopt into my life or into my practice or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think it's just super important. It takes more time, yes, you know, and you have to check your ego at the door for sure. But when you get into the practice of it, it's awesome um, because you get to what I think you should be after, which is the most accurate or representation of the world and how to act in it so that you can achieve your goals. Um, the side effect uh, is that you look way cooler in the eyes of other people. You know what I mean? Like the zealot who's stomping his foot and saying everyone's an idiot and is wrong and my opinion is right, looks dumb to everyone but him or herself. Um, and I don't want that either in my life. You know what I mean? So there's like two benefits to it. One is you get a more accurate picture of reality. And the second is you don't look like an idiot. You actually look like a reason, well-considered, thoughtful person. And even if um, you're not that, you can trick people into thinking you are by doing this one thing, right? So for me, this is sort of the genesis for this idea of like, hey, I need to go out into the world because all work that entrepreneurship, business, coaching, what is the common theme? It just involves other people. So we have to be in community with other people. And that's where the best ideas live. It's an interface between me and you. It doesn't live with you. It doesn't live with me. It's in this interface between us. So I have to figure out a way to make this interface positive and proactive and productive. And I can't get at your ideas, even if I think they're cockamamie. I can't even learn about them. If you don't feel comfortable enough sharing them with me, if 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 you're defensive, if if you're like, this guy's here to fight with me, I can't learn anything about your ideas. I can just learn about what your worst self thinks when you're yelling them at me, which doesn't help me in any way. So that's 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 why I take a very intentional posture, right? Which is curiosity. Hey, listen, I'd like to learn more about your thoughts on this. Even if I think they're dumb thoughts, you know, I'm going to be curious about them. I'm going to be open to them. I'm going to look for any benefit that I might see in them, even if I think the, the meat of them is garbage. Um, and I'm going to be that person who kind of sits in the middle. And then if there's two people fighting here, I won't always be the one who feels like the mediator of that, right? Because maybe I can't control whether they calm down and share their ideas effectively, but I may be able to mediate and get the best out of both of those two people's ideas. 
Um, so that's how I look at it. That's how I act in the world. And it's served me pretty well. I mean, I've been invited into a lot of conversations and places and been paid to do things that uh, I wouldn't have otherwise without this particular, well, I'll call it a superpower because I think it is. I think it's spectacular. And Mike, I don't know if you're thinking the same thing I was thinking. Mike and I both met as being lead instructors for functional movement systems teaching the FMS. And oh, so cool. yeah. one of the things we did is we took months, I think it was months, we went and looked up all the haters and yeah. we looked up everything that they had and like, at what was all this, the shit talking they were saying about it. And some of it we had to filter out to say like, look, this guy just built a, you know, a persona of being a professional asshole online. Like he yeah. just shits on everything. So throw that out the window. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. He's going to, he's going to put it down. But then what we did is we took a lot of that in and a lot of the stuff was just misinterpretations and said, okay, we need to message better. And it made us better instructors to say, okay, if you think this, well, that's not what this is for. It was never intended for this. Um, this is what it actually is. And it made us better instructors. And so to your point, you're doing it on a, on a whole macro level of, of taking this information and saying, okay, well, it's good to hear the other side because now I can actually get people to better understand the thought process of why I think the way I do. So I absolutely yeah. love it. Oh, I love your example. That's such a good one. And it really highlights another way of being that's really important to me. Um, which is this idea of, uh, this is another cliche that I hear bantered about nowadays. And I think it's, uh, sounds great, but it's fully misguided. And it's this one, I think it goes, um, uh, don't take criticism from someone you wouldn't go to for advice. Right. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a soothing balm for the fragile egoed, you know? So it's like that person was mean to me and they criticized my work and, uh, I wouldn't have asked them for advice in the first place. So I can immediately discount what they have to say because it would hurt me otherwise, you know? And uh, I just think it's bad advice. Like take everything. You've yeah, I, I've learned a lot of stuff from some real assholes. Absolutely. You know, but it was still useful information. Yeah, totally. In fact, this is a, a criteria of mine for reviewing my work. I mean, I have people extensively review my work, especially the bigger projects. And uh, usually I invite one or two people who are really smart, but don't like me to do the review because they're not going to cut me any slack, right? They, they may be too aggressively anti my work in their review. Good. Go for it because there are going to be people like them and way worse out there. And I want to find every possible mistake or like you said, every point of clarity that needs to be made that I wasn't going to make otherwise. So I love this approach. I and I think it fits in with the last question. It's just this idea of feedback. You need it. You need so much of it. You need way more of it than you think. You need to go out and hunt it aggressively. And yes, you're going to meet some people who are wrong. Their feedback is absolutely inaccurate. Uh, you're going to meet some people who are mean, right? They're just trying to hurt your feelings because their feelings were hurt or something going bad in their life. Um, chronicle it all, take what's useful from it, make your work better as a result of it. But sometimes it's the ones who you wouldn't ask for advice that give you feedback that help make your work better. Um, so yeah, I love your example of that. I think it's the perfect application. And it's a it's not just a how to be a good human. It's actually a business application. I can go out, listen to all the haters, disregard the feedback that's just designed to be mean 
and then take the stuff to make my product better, right? That's a useful financial benefit to being this way. So uh, we can't thank you enough for your generosity with your time here. And so before we wrap up, is there anything in particular you're working on that, that you want to share with us or, or stuff you think we should check out? Uh, after after we're done with this, other than running to 23andMe and me, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I have no relationship with these companies, <laughs> by the way. I'm fully retired. I make no money off anything we talk about. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't have anything to sell. I mean, if folks want to pick up a copy of my book, if you work in health and fitness, I think it's a good book to pick up. And you know, I I do maybe make one dollar every time you you someone buys a copy of my book, but we've sold a hundred thousand, and I've given away fifty thousand of them. So. Obviously, not uh, money's not super important to me in this regard, but I do think it's it would be valuable for health and fitness professionals. Um, so you can pick up a copy of my book if you want. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of bonus stuff that we make available for free over at the Changemaker Academy website. Um, same thing as I talked about earlier. You know, when when I retired, I I had cool ideas, but I I didn't want to implement them myself because I I wanted to be with my family. So the Changemaker Academy team runs that. Uh, I talk with them maybe once a month and that's it. So if you want to go learn from them, they do an excellent job, but again, I'm not super involved there. Um, so yeah, I don't really have anything to sell. I most, mostly it's, uh, the industry was really good to me. This is the industry I wanted to work in from when I was a teenager. Uh, I got to do some really amazing things here. It's been really, really good to me. So at the tail end of my career, it was just, you know, what kind of legacy work can I do? Uh, make it available to people for free or very, very cheaply so that they can go on and continue that stuff that we were doing back in the early days. So that's really kind of where I sit right now. Well, we, we appreciate you and we appreciate the, all the work you've done and the, and the gifts you've given to the industry and the legend that, uh, that uh, uh, and the legacy, I should say, that you have left. So thank you. And Mr. Perry, this one's gold, man. I'm looking this, forward to this editing this one. This is a good one. And, and, and you know, I, I, one thing that popped into my head, and I'm just want to you know, sort of uh, end us with this is you kept on saying, be curious. And, and I couldn't help but think of Ted Lasso, you know, be curious, not judgmental, right? Yeah, I, that's right. Walt Whitman nice quote a... painted on the wall when he was taking his kid to school, right? Yep, that's it. So, and the dart scene, good Absolutely. reference. Um, Love it. Well, great stuff. And thank you, John. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles Performance Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.